This week, we are going to be closing out our Thrive series with an interview with Pastor John Witte. Now, this is fun for me. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is fun for me because Witte is actually one of my all-around just favorite people. And this, yeah, it just is. And I'm sure if you asked him, that would make me one of his all-time favorite people because if we're honest, there aren't very many people that really like Witty, and so that means I just win by default. I actually met Linda, Witty's wife, about seven years ago, and in spite of our polar opposite personalities, we became fast friends. And I got to know Witty personally a little over a year and a half ago when I started here at City Church, and he so graciously volunteered his much larger office for me to office out of when you, I got here. You took it. I took it. He volunteered it. Two sides of the same coin. <laughs> um, you know, but before we get started in all seriousness, not only do I get to call John Witte a coworker, a brother in Christ, but he's also a spiritual mentor to myself like he is to many others, and I'm blessed to call him a friend. Thanks. Now before we get into the questions, I do wanna just give you a, a quick loop into a situation that's going on with Barbara, our lead pastor, Brent's wife. Last weekend, unfortunately, she was admitted to the hospital unexpectedly. And she is on her road to recovery right now, but Brent, rightly so, is spending all of his time and energy as she seeks to regain full health. And so would you just join us with the rest of the City Church family in lifting them up in prayer and keeping them in your thoughts in the coming days ahead? So, Woody, we have been unpacking the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' teachings, and learning what it means to thrive. And something that stuck out to me was that his teachings are incredibly counterintuitive. And he asks us to do a lot of really hard things like not be angry and don't have lust and love your enemies and even pray blessings over them. Why does Jesus ask us to do such hard things and how does that help us thrive? So Michelle, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and in it Jesus begins uh, by using a word a Greek word, makarios, means to be blessed, means to be fortunate, and as a result of that, means to be happy. Uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago. And then Jesus uses that word about people who we would never think could uh, be happy. And uh, so there are two, broadly speaking, there are two keys to our own happiness, and that is what most of us care about. But these keys to happiness are counterintuitive. They're not what we would normally think. So the first key has to do with faith, and the second one has to do with love. And for quite some time now, we've been talking about the fact that the Christian faith, as Jesus saw it and taught it, and as we teach it today, is faith expressing itself in love. And so the Sermon on the Mount uh, focuses in on those two issues. So they're the key to happiness. The first one is faith. So whenever I believe that Jesus Christ was God, that he came to this earth, he actually died on the cross to pay for my sins, when I believe that, and then as a result of it, I receive him as my savior, I enter into a relationship with him. And that is the beginning of happiness as uh, Jesus taught it. At that point, 
In particular, I enter into a new relationship with God wherein I get to experience the blessings of being connected to my creator. But if I have that kind of relationship, then the next question that I have to ask myself is how should I live my life day in and day out? And so this is where we then apply Jesus's ethic of love. And love, as Jesus taught it, is completely counterintuitive to the way that we normally would think about living life. So Jesus said things like, uh, if you wanna be great, become the servant of all. Whoever is first will be last, and the last will be first. And later, the apostle Paul, based on what Jesus taught, would say that the way up is actually down. And then he talked about how Jesus left heaven and came and died on a cross, and so he descended, and then God raised him up and gave him a name above every name. So the way up is actually down. All of it's counterintuitive, exactly the opposite of the way that we think. So in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus did is he taught that ethic. And in chapter five, he taught us about the importance of loving people. And that's the chapter that you referenced. So it's things like, uh, you know, don't murder. That's not a hard one for most of us. Uh, you know, don't commit adultery. That's not a hard one for most of us, but you know, it's a little bit harder. And then he talks about, well, don't lust in your heart. Oh, that gets a little bit harder for all of us and stuff like, and it just progressively gets harder and harder until finally, uh, the full expression of your love for people is actually loving your enemies. Jesus said, anyone can love your friends, right? I can have my friends over anytime. You do something for me, I do something for you. That's not hard. But to bless someone who actually hates you, that's difficult. And so Jesus said, first of all, if you really wanna be happy, then you've got to learn to love people. But then in chapter six, he talks about if you wanna be happy, you've gotta learn how to love God. And that's what we've been focusing in on the last three weeks is having an intimate love relationship with him. Well, interestingly enough, loving people and loving God is exactly what was revealed to us in the Old Testament. So near the end of Jesus's ministry, the last week of his life before he was gonna be crucified, uh, one of the lawyers came to him and he said, which is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? And he was actually doing that as a test. And Jesus quoted the Shema. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's exactly what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus's ethic of love is actually a summary of the entire Old Testament. The problem is, is that for most of us, the way we think to thrive isn't loving others, and it's probably not loving God. We're really focused in on self-love. And so it's almost as simple as that. If you wanna be happy, Jesus said the focus has to go from being, you know, looking at myself and loving myself to my eyes looking outward, loving other people and loving God. And when I'm focused right here, everything he said seems just the opposite of what I would naturally think. That makes sense. It's hard. We like to focus on ourselves. Jesus says focus on others. Mm -hmm. That is hard. 
You know, now the last, you mentioned this just a second ago, in the last few weeks, you have specifically been talking to us about how we can be happy even when we're not. Right. And a few weeks ago, you mentioned a recent cancer diagnosis that you've received. Mm -hmm. Now, I think I could speak for many of us here. We're worried about you. And yeah. so, do you mind sharing with us a little bit about your diagnosis and what you've been walking through the last few months? Sure. So, um, since the time that I came to City Church about seven years ago, I started noticing some uh, symptoms that I didn't know exactly what they were, but basically they're symptoms of an enlarged prostate. And ultimately, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. So, you know, that's things like, uh, hey, hey, just wait on just a second, I gotta go to the men's room. And then like you're in there forever, right? It just takes a long time to go. And, uh, you know, how'd you sleep last night? Well, fine, except, you know, I had to get up five times and all the things that they make commercials on and stuff like that. Well, I had all that, right? And uh, so I figured, okay, probably got a large prostate. So what? You know, some men are proud of that, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, well, on, on top of that, I never go to the doctor, right? I, I never go to the doctor, so I'm, I'm 58 now. I hadn't been since I was 50. I was supposed to go again at 55. Well, you guys pay for my insurance here through the church. It's free to go uh, for a checkup like this, so it's like, I've gotta go. So I put it off for two years, and finally, this summer, I said, okay, I'm going. Well, just so happened this summer, uh, my dad also told me, I was talking to him about you know some of this, and he, he told me our family history. Well, I knew, my, I knew my grandfather had died, my dad's dad had died. I never met him, so he died before I was born, but I never knew why. He died of prostate cancer. My dad tells me that this summer. Then my dad, at age 59, he died at 59, my grandfather. At age 59, my dad had prostate cancer. My uncle, at about the same age, had it. And so now I'm 58, and so dad decides to tell me. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, you might just... So when I went to the doctor, I fully expected to be diagnosed with prostate cancer. So I wasn't taken by surprise. So when I went to my docs at Urology of San Antonio, I'll put in a good word for them. I love Clayton Hudnall and Kenneth Stallman. And so guys, if you need a urologist, great place to go get it. Uh, these guys were just fabulous. And when they, the first thing my doctor said to me, paid me a compliment, he said, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. You're too young, you're too healthy. What's going on? And as soon as I told him my family history, it's like, okay, we're biopsying your prostate right away. And so I didn't have real high-grade cancer, Michelle, but I had a lot of it. And so we talked about it, and basically the only option for me at my age and the best option was to go ahead and have surgery and remove it, and they felt like they could probably get all of that and get it out and just, you know, I'd be okay. So <clears throat> uh, I said, that sounds great, but first things first, September's coming, and I got an elk hunt. And so, you know, what do you I think orders. about that? <laughs> and uh, he said, by all means, you know. So he walked to the front desk with me. This is why I think Clayton Hunnall is such a great doctor. And he completely organized everything else that was going to happen related to this prostate cancer around my elk hunting trip. So I love that about him. And uh, Stallman, my surgeon, Kenneth Stallman, he's a Baylor grad like I am. We, we talked for like 30 minutes. It took us 25 minutes to get to cancer. We were talking about guns and, you know, all this kind of stuff we love together. So, like, he was a cool doc to have. 
So we decided I'd get back on the 24th from hunting up in Oregon, and on the 27th, we'd have the surgery. So I came back in like the most incredible condition. This always happens every year when I go elk hunting. We're climbing mountains for hours every day. We ate eight pies in two weeks, and I lost weight. That's how much exercise we got. So I was like so strong when I got back September 24th, you know? Well, three days later, I had this surgery, and after that, I could barely shuffle down the hall. And um, so my daughter, who's a nurse, uh, she came to pick me up, take me home after that. She picked me up in a 93 Chevy Silverado single cab. I can tell you, San Antonio has bad roads, and Seve took the long way home. You know, so it was horrible getting home. That was one of the worst things about it. So I'm just laying in bed moaning and groaning. That's what men do, right? We're big crybabies. But I just told him, I said, shut the door if you don't want to hear me moan, because I don't know what else to do. Every time I moan, I feel better for a split second. So I just kept doing it. And uh, I lost a bunch of weight, had no appetite, didn't want to eat. That was all kind of cool, you know, after the fact, stuff like that. Uh, I think the best thing, I'm recovering well, went back to work within 10 days. I'm uh, getting my stamina back. I'm cycling now. I'm hunting. I'm working on the farm. I'm going to be doing CrossFit in January. But I can tell you the best thing about all of this, it's just awesome. The best thing about all of this, if you don't mind me saying, is at 58, I can now pee like a 16-year-old. I love it. You want to pee like a 16-year-old. I want to hold it like a 16-year-old. We've all got life goals. So just to, you know, diagnosis, cleared up. What, what's the yeah. outcome? So uh, initially they took a little extra tissue around the prostate, sent it off, and everything comes back completely benign. I'll go in. Yeah. We'll be. <laughs> uh, the real test is I go in on the 18th, they'll draw some blood, do another PSA level, and if that's zero, that means I'm cancer-free, so we'll see. Okay, we're praying yeah. for a PSA of zero for the 18th. Uh, that's what we're hoping for. Now, <clears throat> I wanna talk a little bit about how we should view trials of this life. So what happens if we get bad news, like you got bad news, yeah. uh, if something happens to us or if something happens to somebody that we love, and if we're being really honest, we're questioning why, and we might actually be mad at God. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Michelle, a lot of people actually talk to me about being mad at God. So I hear that a lot. And it's natural for us to get mad whenever bad things happen. Uh, certainly not on a serious level like what we're talking about. But, um, you know, at, at my farm, I've got this barn that the previous people built back in the 50s. People in the 50s must have been really short <laughs> because they built it with these beams that hit me right here. And so most of the time, I walk into my barn and I tell myself, John, remember to duck. And I duck and I'm okay. But about two months ago, I was doing something else and I had already told myself to duck going into the barn. But coming out of the barn, I forgot to tell myself to duck. And I hit the top of my head. It compressed my neck and literally knocked me to the ground. I got mad, right? A couple days ago, I was hunting and I you know, re trying to recover this deer that I had shot and I am tracking blood and I got my head down and I'm looking, you know, for, and I am intense 
and I ran right into the limb of an oak tree that hit me right here. And, you know, first thing is like, oh God, I must be bleeding, you know? So I put my hand up there, no blood. It hurt so badly, I even took the Lord's name in vain. And I don't even believe in that. I was like, sorry, God, I didn't mean that. But I was mad. So I understand getting mad about events that happen, but that's very different than staying mad at God. And so it, what I believe about that is that whenever we get mad at God and we stay mad at him, what we're really doing is we're kind of reversing roles. And we're saying, God, you didn't get it right, and you owe me an explanation. And from what I think the scriptures reveal to us about God, he knows everything, and he loves us completely. And so getting mad at God and staying mad at him, while he's a big boy and he can take it, if you want to say it that way, it doesn't make sense to me. What I prefer when we go through hard times is what I read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. So King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a very proud king, the most powerful man in the world at that time, erected this huge gold statue to himself. Most of you probably know the story and demanded that everyone bow down to it and worship. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were Israelites. They knew there was only one God and they weren't about to bow down to any statue or idol and certainly not to another king. And so they refused to do that. Well, when King Nebuchadnezzar was told about their refusal, they were brought before him and the king actually gave them another chance. It was as if he was saying, maybe you didn't understand the routine and what you were supposed to do. So I'm gonna give you another chance to bow down. And they said, king, you don't need to give us another chance. They said, we're not going to bow down. Our God is able to save us from this fiery furnace that you're going to throw us into that will kill us instantly. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. And Michelle, that's what I think our attitude should be whenever we face difficult times. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have easily been mad at God. We've honored you our whole life. We've worshiped no one but you our whole life. Why are you putting us in this life and death situation? And they could have gotten mad at God. Instead, they recognized him as God and they maintained their place of humility before him. And they even said, we're willing to put our lives on the line for him. And so what I see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doing is they had faith, but at the moment of that difficulty, they developed big faith. And so trials are an opportunity for us to develop a bigger faith in God. And the way that happens is, is, it's, is when difficult things come, it's very natural to ask why. God, why is this coming my way? Why are you allowing this? Why are my kids doing this? Why did my spouse file on me? Why is this going on? And then it's in moments like that that we have the chance to develop a really huge faith and an intimacy with God that actually guarantees our happiness 
that has nothing to do with our circumstances. So that makes sense about how we should posture ourselves um, in the trials of this life, but it kind of brings up the next question about can we be happy even when we're not, when we caused maybe the unhappiness ourselves. So where your cancer diagnosis was hereditary, you did nothing to bring that on yourself and it was bad news. What if, what if we did something that um, caused our own unhappiness? Can we rightly ask God to help us through that? Uh, and does he, does he see that any differently? Yeah, well, he absolutely does. The, the analogy that I like that the Bible's just full of is it calls God our Father right, speaks to him as our father. And so that really helps me whenever I think about, okay, I've messed up my own life. How do I relate to God in this moment? I think we relate to him as a father. So I wanna tell you, uh, as a father, I I wanna talk for a second about how our roles as fathers change. And I wanna use my fourthborn, my son, Ben, who's now 23, I wanna use uh, a little bit of a story about Ben to do that. So when, when, when Ben was young, when all the kids were young, Linda and I basically, you know, we ruled the house. It's our house, we're paying for everything. You're here because of us. You're gonna do it the way we want it done. And you know, it's easy to get away with that when your kids are young, right? And it's even helpful. I mean, why do I want my kids to rule the house? They, they don't know anything yet. So we were in charge and things were gonna go our way. So one day, Linda and I were out. We were, we were living in Kenya at the time. We were out, we'd gone and done something. And on the way home, we're just talking like husband and wives do. And she's kind of updating me on how things are going in the family. And she let me know that Ben was disrespecting her. Oh, well, that didn't go well at all. So it's like, okay, when I get home, I'm dealing with Ben because rule number one in our family was you don't disrespect your parents. And uh, part of my job, you know, as dad is you're not gonna disrespect mom and you're not gonna disrespect my wife. So we drive in and Ben and all the girls are jumping on the trampoline and they're laughing and just having a great time. And so I march over to the trampoline. Now don't hate me for this. I march over the trampoline and Ben's like, dad, until I grabbed him by the back of the neck and escorted him off the trampoline. And I mean, everybody's eyes got real big, real fast, right? That, that moment where I taught Ben about you will respect your mom and, uh, and we're not gonna have this again, right? We never had it again, and everybody learned, and it's one of those moments that marked Ben. So to this day, Ben respects Linda highly and loves her and shows that, and he's very affectionate and stuff like that. Well, the other day, just this last week, Ben and I were eating lunch. You'll never guess where we ate. Whataburger, right? And you never guess what we had. Number two meal. So we're sitting there, and now Ben's 23. He's not seven anymore, he's, he's 23. And so we're talking, and eventually Ben brings up some issues, I won't tell you what they were, but it's like, you know, here's how things are going into this, and what do you think? Well, my role as dad has completely changed. I have no desire to run Ben's life, I have no desire to live it for him, I'm not gonna tell him what to do, and I'm not gonna try to make things go my way. It's not my role as father. What I want to do now is I want to advise, I want to help. But in order to do that, Ben has to ask. Because at 23, I'm not going to come charging in and say, this is how it's going to be. He has to ask. And so 
what he did that day is he asked, and I gave advice. I tried to help him see the bigger picture. James says that that's what God does with us. When we mess up our lives, he says in James 1.5, if anyone needs wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally, generously, and without reproach, without finding fault. God doesn't say, Michelle, I told you not to do that. Why did you have to do that? God doesn't treat us that way. Instead, he gives us the wisdom we need to know what to do and how to move beyond the mess that we've created. And many of us actually don't ever ask. And the reason we don't ask is we don't believe that God will actually want to talk to us. But that's not how he is at all. So in Luke chapter 15, Jesus told a story about a man whose son asked for the inheritance, wanted to leave home. He went and he spent all of his father's inheritance on women and booze. And then a famine came and he didn't have anything to eat. And as a Jewish young man, he was reduced to feeding pigs. That doesn't work in Jewish culture. And so he came to his senses. He said, what am I doing? Let me go home, tell my dad I've messed things up and see if he'll take me back as a servant. So the boy comes home and while he's still a long ways off, Jesus said his father saw him. That means his dad was looking for him. And he had compassion on him, and he ran to him. And Michelle, it's so interesting. In Middle Eastern culture, men don't run. Children run. It's very demeaning for a man to run. But his dad ran to him, and he humbled himself. And that's how God is with us. He forgave his son. He runs to us. He looks for us. God's waiting for us. We're the ones who often say, I've messed it up. I can't go back to you. And he's just waiting for us to ask. And as soon as he sees the slightest hint, uh, he wants to help us with the wisdom we need to work our lives out. Now, Woody, you know, before your surgery... We went to lunch, and I'm sure everybody can guess where. Whataburger. Um, and I asked you a question, and as always, you were very candid with your answer. And so, um, really quickly, I'd like to see if you would answer the question for all of us here about your kids. And I asked you if you were asking for God to heal you, and you said no. Why is that? Uh, Michelle, I believe God heals, and I've seen him do that. Um, Just one example, Linda ran a clinic while, you know, we were serving in uh, Kenya, and uh, we we were living out deep in the bush, and I remember one day a little girl was brought to Linda, and she was not thriving. She was not doing well. So, when Linda put her on a table about the size of this one, little girl was just in a kind of the fetal position. And uh, Linda listened to her heart. And every time her heart would beat, there would be a squish. And that meant that the girl literally had a hole in her heart and she was dying. And so there was nothing Linda could do for her. So she came and got me. Since it, she, and literally, it was like tag team, it's your turn. You're the preacher, you do a miracle or whatever, because I can't do anything for her. 
So I went in and I basically told the family, I said, look, you know, there's not much, honestly, there's not much hope for your daughter, but we're going to pray for her. And so we prayed for her. They took that little girl uh, to the district hospital, which had nothing in it. It had nothing. And they gave her one pint of blood. Meaningless. We all get that. A few weeks later, this little girl walked in the compound completely healed. And God did that. So God heals people, and it's great when he heals eight-year-old girls. But I've lived most of my life. I've lived a lot of my life. I haven't lived all of it, but I've lived a lot of my life. I'm two-thirds through, probably. And so I'm beginning to think about the future. And there's something else that is really important for us. When we suffer, it's important that we think about how we handle that suffering. So the Apostle Peter wrote this. He said, he said in the future, there's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this salvation is not the salvation that many of us have experienced already in this life. It's a salvation that has to do with making the most of your life in eternity. And we talk about that sometimes. Peter said in this, this salvation that's going to be revealed, our inheritance that we have in the future, in this he said you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. He says that there's a reason that we're grieved by these trials and that they come. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Michelle, when Jesus comes again for us, the next event following that is called the judgment seat of Christ. And there... Our lives are going to be evaluated. So imagine what's going to happen is, is that Jesus is going to call me up. He's going to call you up. He's going to call every one of you up that's a believer in him. And, you, and the story of our lives is going to be told. And part of the story of my life is going to be, hey, Witty, remember whenever you got cancer, that cancer diagnosis? Your story will be differently. And what he's going to do is he's going to play for us how we handled that. And Peter says that if we handle it well, then it's going to result in praise, glory, and honor for Jesus Christ. And you know what's going to happen? Whenever your life honors him in that moment, what will it automatically do for you and me? It will honor us as well. And so at 58, that's what I care about not about being healed. I trust him completely as my father. He can heal me if he wants to. That would be fine. That's not what I care about. What I care about is honoring him. And so that is what I want to pursue. And that plays out in a very practical way. It's not just honoring him in the next life. It's honoring him right now in this life so that the people who are watching, my family, my children, as I go through this time, they learn how to handle difficult times as well in a way that is honoring to him and actually, rather than destroying their faith and destroying their happiness, they're actually able to thrive and be happy even when they're not. 
And Father, that is our prayer today, for you to give us a glimpse of your love. Because Father, all we need is you. And God, I lift up Witty and his results on the 18th. And Father, I lift up Barbara as she's on her pursuit to health. And Father, I just ask that you continue to give us the strength that we need and the wisdom that we need and the peace that we need so that way we can give you praise and honor and glory as we face the trials of this life. Father, help us to do that. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray all of these things. Amen.